0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And if you're new, welcome. My name is Katie Morton, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And on this podcast, I answer your questions. You can ask me anything about therapy, about the process, even about my own experience in therapy. And hopefully you find it helpful. Now, if you're new, if you're wondering where do I get these questions from, I get them over in the community tab on my podcast channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can just click over into the community tab. And on Sunday mornings around 6 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, I post asking for your questions. Now, if you're listening to this on audio only, you just have to go onto YouTube, search for opinions that don't matter. That's the name of the podcast that I have with my husband. And so that's the name of the channel. And when you get into the channel, you click community and it will be in there. So you can ask your questions. And the first eight are the ones that got the most thumbs ups. And the last two are just random picks. I kind of like scroll and stop and select them that way so that everybody has an opportunity to get their questions answered. And without further ado, let's get into this first question. And this question says, hi, Katie, how do therapists notice the nonverbal signals in their clients? What are obvious signals and what are less obvious signals? Greetings from the Netherlands. Ooh, the Netherlands. So fun. I love it over there. Okay, let's get into this. This is a great, great question. Now, the first signal that I look for in my patients, and I don't know, other therapists might have their own, but the first thing I look for is hygiene, meaning does my patient's hair look greasy? Do their clothes look like they're not washed or do they have, you know, body odor? Now, I know that might sound judgmental, but that's not how it's meant. What I'm trying to assess is how able are you to take care of yourself right now? Are we so depressed it's hard to get out of bed and therefore we haven't done our laundry and we haven't taken a shower? We all know how hard that can be and you might not be able to express that to me. So I want to be able to notice those things. And so I definitely pay attention to that. Then I also pay attention to things like this is kind of, I mean, these are obvious ones, I guess. But when my patients are sitting on the very edge of the couch and like super, super fidgety, that's usually a sign of some anxiety. It could be anxiety about being in therapy or it could be an anxiety disorder, but that's just something that I also pay attention to. Um, then um, if a patient struggles to make eye contact, I notice that. If there are certain questions that they completely avoid, like certain people or subjects where they, they just change the subject or don't answer fully and I, I know that they're aware of what I asked. You know, those are some of the things that I pay attention to. Also I pay attention to be, because I specialize, if you guys don't know, in eating disorders and self-injury work, I pay attention to whether or not my patient is wearing super baggy clothes or tons of layers. Um if you guys don't know, I now live in Texas, which is even hotter, I'll be honest. And we used to live in Santa Monica. Both areas would not require, you know, like three shirts and a sweatshirt and a jacket or anything like that. You know, it's it's summertime also right now. So that doesn't make any sense. And so I pay attention to that. And then also if they're grabbing onto their their arms really tightly or scratching themselves or picking a lot at their fingers or at their face and just things like that. And overall, you know, how able they are to participate in therapy. You know, are they able to put wor- their feelings to words? Are they able to make, make eye contact and respond quickly? You know, what is it like for them? So all those things are things that I'm taking into consideration. Yeah. And I think that's really it. I'm sure later today, after I've recorded this, I'm gonna be like, oh, that's another one. But overall, we're just, I don't want people to feel like therapists are like reading everything, paying attention to every move. It's more about what, what will tell us the things that you, maybe you aren't able to verbalize? What's your body language explaining to us? And we want to make sure that we're open to receiving those messages. And so I'm always, you know, aware of those things. Now, the comments after this said, the first one says, Katie, if you have time, can you also cover how therapists notice patients are spacing out or mildly dissociating, especially if they're still responding? Thanks so much. Now, that really comes with my relationship, like how how long I've been seeing a patient, and how, how close our relationship is. And I don't mean crossing boundaries. It's still a, a very, you know, therapeutic relationship. But if I've only been seeing someone for a month, I might not know all the signs that they're dissociating yet because everybody's different. Um, like some of my patients, I know they space out. They do this where we're make, they're making eye contact and we're talking. And then I go to a hard subject and they look away, which is normal, right? We're trying to recall information. We can look away, but they never come back. So it's like and they'll even do this. I had a patient once that would like look everywhere but at me. And so we started to work on trying to bring her back by like what kind of shoes am I wearing and you know what what color is my sweater today and like bringing her back up to my eye line. But they she would do things like, you know, all the way around. And so I got to understand that that was her Telltale sign that she was struggling to stay present, or potentially already dissociated, dissociating. Um, and so, I guess it, it's eye contacts a huge one. Also, for my self injury type patients, they tend to grab themselves very intensely on their legs, on their arms, or even hold onto the sofa that I have in my office really tightly. But Again, everybody's different, but eye contact and that, I can't really think of anything else. Also just not being able to answer questions a lot of times, unless my patient, we already have assessed and we know that they struggle with anxiety. When a patient looks away from me, again, the eye contact and just isn't able to speak, that's a huge thing too. So those are just some of the ways that I notice. And yeah, if you have different ones that you feel like I left out that you that are some of your telltale signs, let us know in those comments. Now, the person who asked this goes on to, oh, no, now we're on to another comment. Sorry. Reading my own notes says, hi, I hope this is related, but is eye contact nonverbal communication? It definitely can be. I'm diagnosed with complex PTSD and was wondering what does the lack of eye contact mean, especially during therapy sessions? Thank you so much. thought this was a great question. Now, if we've been traumatized, eye contact can make us feel very vulnerable, and depending on what happened to us and what the circumstances were, are, it could also be a trigger, right? Someone could have forced eye contact with us or done other things to, to make us watch things that were triggering or, or traumatizing and now having to, you know, being feel like you're forced to look at someone can be very upsetting. So the lack of eye contact for my patients who've been traumatized usually tracks back to not wanting to feel vulnerable because making eye contact is kind of intimate and that can feel icky to us, right? It can feel re-traumatizing or at at the very least triggering. It can cause us to want to dissociate. And so that I think that might be why it's happening to you or why it's so difficult to make eye contact if, you know, if you find it really difficult when you're talking about trauma and your trauma experience, you might find it impossible to try to make eye contact. And that that would be my guess as to why is that vulnerability and that, that connection with another person doesn't feel safe and so and it, it can even be triggering to make us want to dissociate and so we'll, we'll look off um, as a way to kind of preserve it's self-preservation right and now the final comment on this says hi katie will a therapist notice signs of transference a good one would and we should it's something that's like beaten to us in there in uh school it says i've been wanting slash scared to bring it up is it possible she has a feeling yes if you think she's a good therapist, I would assume that she knows. Now, transference, if anybody out there is like, what is that word? Transference is when we, as the patient, transfer on to our therapist another relationship. And what I mean by that is like, and it's not always a relationship, actually. It's like you're transferring on them another experience even. But usually, I would say like 99% of the time in my experience, it's another relationship, meaning that my patient can treat me like I'm their mom. And let's say they have a really unhealthy relationship with their mom, they take it out on me as a way to kind of try to work through it. It's actually kind of smart of our brain to try this. But as a therapist, it's important to acknowledge that it's happening and track it back to what the real cause is, like the relationship with your mom, so that we can then work through that. Does that make sense? Because transference in and of itself, I know it gets a bad rap. It's not a bad thing. It's just... As the patient, so as a therapist, I guess we have to be able to acknowledge that it's there, communicate about it, and talk with our patient about it. And the patient has to be open to working on it, just like anything else, right? And yes, defense mechanisms will come up, and yes, it can be hard for us to admit that we are treating our therapist like our sister, abuser, dad, mom, whoever. And but that that's really, it's I think it's helpful information. Now countertransference, which you might have heard that term as well is when the therapist then reacts back and that's usually an indication that the therapist is either a not very good at their job or most likely b needs their own therapy because therapists can take on a lot right we can have a lot of stuff that we're going through and things that we're working on and if we're and we're taking on a lot of other people's stuff right if we struggle with boundaries it can be really hard so that's just in- indicative of the fact that we need to take care of ourselves as well so anyway those, yes, your therapist should notice, to wrap this up, yes, your therapist should notice signs of transference. It's very, very common. Don't think anything is wrong with you. And I know you feel scared to bring it up, but I'm here to tell you that it happens almost always. And any therapist who is good at their job will be able to navigate that with you and help you realize that it is okay. And even your own insight to recognize it's happening is just beautiful. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And it says, Hi, Katie, do you have any tips for people who feel like they have missed out in their teen years and early adulthood and would like to just be a teen again to experience what they feel they missed? I'm 26 soon. And so I'm reaching that point where I am soon not to be considered a quote unquote young adult. However, I've missed being social in my teens due to social anxiety. I've been masking all my life and only now have a phase where I'm finding myself in a way that people do in their teens or after school. A year passed with me just being ill. Then the pandemic hit, which I basically spent surviving. And now I feel like so many opportunities just aren't there anymore. Like a lot of programs are just for young adults. And I feel like I'd be ready to use them just when it's too late and I don't qualify. So many things are just possible to experience when you're at school or at university or qualify for certain programs, and only younger people are given certain support. I'd like to do internships, like a curious kid, not an adult from which you expect so much. I'd like to do a student exchange and experience being able to talk to people at school. I want it to be normal that I haven't yet figured out my identity and that I'm yet to figure out my career path and to be surrounded by people who are at that point as well. I'm only now realizing that it's okay and normal to voice my opinion and what I'm thinking. And I want to experience those earlier years being myself. It's just all so different. And I can't help but feel sad about not being able to experience things because I was too slow or sick or just not ready at the time that it was possible. And the person made an edit to this said, I've realized that there are two components to this. One, not having done things in the past and two not having let myself make mistakes in the past and i struggle more with the second a lot um, but a lot of the talk so in the first in the comments is about the first so it'd be great if you could talk about both and then we have one additional comment on top of this but i just really want to jump right in because there's a lot to this and i love this question and i don't know i feel like it could be an entire video because i just really i think this topic is much more common than maybe people realize Un- unfortunately the person who wrote this is correct in some ways. Some programs and, advan- I don't know, like I don't know if you wanna call it like advantages, but there are definitely things and like certain opportunities that are offered to younger people in order to give them like a leg up and help them learn about a different career path or a new thing. But I'm here to push back a little and tell you that there is no limit on when we can go back to school, pick a career, take an internship, study abroad. I personally went through a program called ICADS, like I-C-A-D-S in Costa Rica. This was back in 2006. And in that program, there was no age limit. Now, the majority of us, I'd say like 70% were in their 20s in college currently. I think I was a junior when I went there. It was between my sophomore and junior year. Anyways, I went And there were other people in their 40s. There was one woman in her 60s. There were a couple of guys that were, I want to say, in their early 50s. Anyway, it was a total hodgepodge of people, as it should be. And I loved that there was no age limit and no restrictions. And so I would encourage you to, instead of trying to almost uh, prove that there's no opportunity for you and you don't have the right or the ability anymore to find yourself, I would encourage you to look for other situations, other programs, other things that will allow you to do the things you want, right? It's like we want want to check our facts and if we're only looking for facts to support it, we're not going to find another option. And but there are other options out there. Even when I went to graduate school, there were a lot of people in my program who were, you know, in their 40s or 50s trying to figure out either starting a new career path or trying to figure out if they they thought they wanted to become a therapist and wanted to at least start the program to see. There was a lot of that. Even one of the women that I went to school with was a nurse. And she, after seeing all the mental health issues they deal with at a hospital, instead of becoming a psych nurse, which a lot of people do, she decided she actually wanted to open a practice and be a therapist. And so she went back to school. And I, I only bring up those, I know there's just a couple examples, but that's just examples in my life. And so... What you're experiencing, especially since this is the second question, you're definitely not alone. I don't know how many thumbs up ups this got, but probably 70 or 80, which means that just in our community, a lot of people are experiencing this. And so my tips for you are to notice how you talk to yourself about this and whether or not you're, and I guess it's kind of a second already, is like, are you only looking for things to prove what you believe now? Or are we looking for things to disprove it, which I would encourage you to do? And by noticing how we're talking to ourselves, I know I say this all the time, but just being aware of how we talk to ourselves about our life and our situation and what we're going through is super helpful because so often we're having these really hateful, hurtful and demeaning conversations with ourselves when we don't need to, and it's not helpful. And it just makes us feel worse. And it just causes us to spiral into like shame, guilt, or embarrassment or all of the above. And it sounds like some of that might be happening. And like, you feel kind of bad that, you know, it took you this long and now you're like, it's it's too late. It's not too late. So just notice when you're thinking that and let's challenge it by checking our facts, seeing if there's something else that proves that we can still do this. Um, and also, you know, if we're talking nastily to ourselves, use those bridge statements. Like, let's be open. Bridge statements, if you're new to those, are, you know, the maybes, the possibilities. It's not so cut and dried, so black and white. It's like, I am open to the fact that maybe it's not too late. Maybe 26 isn't too old for me to do these things that other people maybe did at a younger age. They're not, to, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, but I also want to say that as you get older and you get to my age, I'm 37, people will try to tell you that you're too old to start something. I have a lot of friends that are in the comedy space and usually people who are in entertainment in general start out very young, right? They do their first stand up or first audition when they're like in 18, 19, maybe 20. But then when you get to my age, people think, oh, you can't, you can't do that. But Joey Diaz is a great example. Not, not even if you don't even like his comedy, that's not the issue here. But he didn't start, I don't. I want to say in like his 40s, maybe early 50s. I'm not even sure. But Homeboy did not start at the, in his 20s like everybody else. And he still has a successful career. And so I'm just here to tell you that there are opportunities. We just have to look for them. And we also have to not take no for an answer. There is nothing wrong with being an intern and trying to learn about a job at 26. Okay? There's nothing wrong with doing that at 36, 46. But this the, this person is specifically 26 and is feeling like they're too old for it. Anybody will uh, will love to have free labor. <laughs> That's what I it was when I was an intern. Is you either work for very little or you work for free and it's a great way to see how the inner workings of let's say a marketing firm or maybe even a school or uh how a a youtuber works i know a lot of my friends in the youtube space have hired interns and I just want you to know that we have to you can you can still be a curious kid. I'd encourage all of us to know that we can still be curious. We don't have to have it all figured out. There's nothing wrong with changing your mind at a different time and deciding you want something else or for the first time feeling like you maybe know who you are and now you want to move forward with that. We really have to throw out this timeline that people give us because I don't accept it having to get married by a certain age or have a career path by a certain age, buy a home. There's all these like milestones that A, maybe we don't even want any of them. And B, what's the fucking rush? Why are we just rushing ourselves? I don't understand what the need for the speed is. It's crazy. And none of us feel like it's a good pace. So I'm on your team too. I would love to still be a curious kid and I try my best to do that where I go into conversations with people and don't pretend like I know what they're talking about. You know, sometimes adults will do that where they just like nod along and pretend. I'm like, really? Huh? I didn't know about that. Tell me about that. You know, we can still learn new things. And I just encourage you to not allow your brain to, to give this any more energy. Okay. I know easier said than done, but pay attention to what you're saying about it. And There was a comment on this where it says, hey, Katie, can you additionally talk about having feelings of missing out right now? Like when you have so many opportunities, you feel like whatever you choose, you miss out and this stresses you out. I think that's anxiety. (laughs) The fear of missing out, I I really believe is anxiety. And I would encourage you to journal. I know I love journaling or at least write down. Doesn't have to be like journaling. It just be some bullet points about what it is that you feel you're missing out on. And then, as you've probably guessed, based on my answer to the first portion of this question, is then I want you to check your facts to see if there are ways to potentially have this opportunity next year or next month or this week or whatever. You know, if you aren't ready now or you aren't able to now, will it still be around in six months? Chances are it probably will. Can we make a point to work towards doing this next year? Probably. And just focusing on that instead of focusing on the the missing out and the anxiety that can come along with that. Because worry and anxiety doesn't actually help us at all. It only hinders us. And so if we can figure out ways to... I would just say, like, assuage the anxiety, meaning make it go down, make it better, go away. Like, how can we deal with that feeling so that we, because, and the way that we deal is like, so that we can see that we are able to still do those things. Um, does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And I want to make sure I answered all because this was this was a very well thought out question, and you know, it had quite a few different points to it. I think, because that's all, so back to the first question, it's all just so different. And I can't help but feel sad about not being able to experience these things. I'm going to, ch- so that's the pushback right there. You are able to experience these things. There's nothing, nothing that only you are telling you yourself that you can't. Now, sure, you could argue back and be like, well, Katie, I tried to apply this internship and the age limit is 22. Okay, let's find a different one. Or, call them or email them and advocate for yourself. Say, hey, you know, in light of COVID and everything that's happened, I find myself on the older end of internships, but I'm still very interested. Would they possibly consider increasing the age limit? Now, most places, I would, I would be surprised if they wouldn't because to have to, like ageism is not appropriate for anything, whether you're too old or too young, that's not okay. And so I believe that, again, Checking our facts, I think that we'll be able to apply for things and do the things that we want. And we don't have to continue to tell ourselves that we can't. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And that says Hi, Katie, can you talk a little about touch aversion? I grew up with almost no touch aside from physical abuse, and I have never learned to like touch, being touched, or touching others. I do deal with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, and I have an avoidant attachment style. When I was a single adult touch wasn't an issue but now I'm in my mid 40s married with kids oh my god how did you have kids kids are so all over you touch you all the time <laughs> one of my manager has two little girls they're adorable and we she was in visiting in Austin cuz her family lives out here and we were at Barton Springs like this local swimming hole And one of her daughters, she had on her hip and the other one was like climbing up her front while we were just standing in the water. And I was like, oh my God, they're just smothering you. And she's like, all day, every day. So anyways, I'm just surprised that you survived that. Over the years, I've learned to be a bit more comfortable with touch, even though it still feels unnatural. I know my kids need it, and I'm delighted that they're both very physically affectionate, but I still worry that my family, especially my spouse, who is very physically affectionate, suffers, especially during those times when touch is just unbearable, and I feel the compulsion to push them away and withdraw. My husband is understanding and supportive, but I feel very guilty. Could this be part of the avoidant attachment that will improve as I continue to work through it, or a separate issue?" Thank you for all that you do. Your videos and podcasts have given me so much insight about mental health, and I would give almost anything to have had them years ago. I should add that I do not have a sexual abuse history, so the aversion does not stem from that. Okay, that's good to know. Now, yes, I would believe that, well, first of all, the abuse, because I would throw into the because you said, um, you know, as a kid, you grew up with no touch except for physical abuse. So on top of your uh, major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, I would throw in PTSD. Now, you might not have the symptoms of PTSD. I'm just putting it out here because I want you to know that as we process through the abuse and as we deal with our PTSD symptoms, which is kind of part of that avoidant attachment style, that healing, that inner child work that you're going to do, it's all connected in a way because when we're traumatized as a child we can struggle to feel safe around adults and to have a healthy attachment style meaning we know that when we cry people will come to care for us and we feel safe to go out into the world and explore knowing we can come back because we have this safe foundation all of that's tied up into the PTSD or the the childhood physical abuse and so yes I'm here to tell you yes if you do work through that and And that means not just necessarily talking it out. I learned this when I was preparing for my new book that's actually available for pre-order right now. It's called Traumatized, and you can find it anywhere where books are sold. So when I was doing the research for that book, I was honestly very surprised to find out that a majority of people, I think it's like 60 to 65% of people, do not find resolution of their PTSD symptoms solely through talk therapy. They most people need something additional, something like EMDR, which is that eye movement desensitization reprocessing, um, or maybe it's somatic experiencing where we get it out in our body and we, we move around to release that stress response. There are other things as well, like uh, vagus nerve stimulation, which I won't get into too much. I talk about it in my book a little bit and some other treatments. But I'm just here to tell you that maybe talk therapy isn't enough, and maybe we need to find something additional to help you process it through. But once you are able to work through that, yes, I believe this aversion, Will go away. Now, I also do want to say that for those of us who maybe have sensory processing disorder or a highly sensitive person, touch can sometimes be overwhelming at some points and we'll need to like pull away and withdraw to recharge. And that's totally normal. As long as we communicate that with our loved ones, there shouldn't be that big of an issue. We should be able to take those breaks when we need, kind of getting to know our system and when we start to feel overwhelmed, taking that break so we don't get to the point where we like push people away or get agitated or irritated. Irritated about it, and I think that that could help even the person who asked this question. That could help you maybe right now, so that while you're working through things, we just we know that that's going to take some time. But we should get to know ourselves and how we feel when we go from zero being I feel fine with touch. It's not comfortable, but it's okay, and I don't feel overwhelmed. And then all the way at the top is like, I have to push you away and withdraw. Is this too much? And how can we recognize when we're kind of in the middle and we just need to take a break and then we can come back when we feel a little bit better, maybe like, are there things we can do? I'd, I'd want you to take some time to really be curious about that and figure out some of those signs so that as we creep up in that overwhelm, we can do things to bring us back down and feel okay. So that again, so that it doesn't cause us more issues, right? More issues with those that we love. I hope that that helps. And I hope that makes sense. I know that 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 stuff can be really hard and be really overwhelming. and, And also, like you said, you have a lot of guilt. And I just, I want you to know that you're doing the best you can. It will get better. And those who love you, obviously, your husband's very understanding. So those who love you will stick around for it. It's okay. We just have to communicate with them about what's going on and let them know that we're working on it. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number four. This question is, hi, Katie, I get really uncomfortable and anxious in places with loud music, lots of people talking or basically anywhere that's really loud. I also freak out and panic whenever I hear people yelling. I've never experienced any type of abuse or anything like that. I also have generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety. Why do I get so anxious in situations like that? And then someone commented on it and said, I have the same thing especially when my anxiety is already high. As a follow-up question, what can we do to help get through those situations since it's not possible to always avoid loud places? I get very anxious and it's hard to concentrate on anything else. Now, I love that this question followed the other question. It was just the number of likes because again, this just feels like sensory overload. I think a lot of people, it can be highly sensitive person in HSP, um, which someone I think left on a comment on this question, I believe. But a highly sensitive person just can feel very overwhelmed by their environment because we are so in tune with it. And those of us who aren't can't really understand why it feels so overwhelming. I also want to put in here that people with sensory processing disorder, as well as those on the autism spectrum, can feel these similar symptoms, meaning loud, like loud restaurants is like, it's, it's like torture for someone, for, for an autistic person or someone with sensory process, processing disorder, because we're taking in so much that it, it's like, it's overwhelming to our brain and our system and we can shut down or we can lash out or like the person who left a comment said, can't concentrate on anything else. All of those things can happen. So. I would encourage you to talk to your therapist or bring up your concerns about this and say, Hey, you know, I'm curious if because of this, I get, you know, this loud music, if there's too many people around, could I be assessed for sensory processing disorder or autism spectrum disorder? It never hurts to get an assessment and you just you know, it's like doing a, a random weird test about yourself and what you experience to see what's going on. Because again, autism spectrum is a spectrum because people experience it very differently. Some people might only have a couple of these symptoms. Some might have all symptoms and then more, you know, and so we just have to be assessed to figure out maybe what's going on. And that could give you more insight into why it's happening for you. Those are just some potentials, right? We want to kind of assess and rule those out. Um, and the people yelling, I, again, it's all auditory. It's, it seems to be well, and lots of people talking. Yeah, so it just seems it's an auditory stimulus that is very triggering to you. And I would want you to be kind of curious about that. It doesn't necessarily have to be any abuse. I don't know. I don't like loud places either, but I... I connect it to the fact that I'm definitely more on that highly sensitive person spectrum, like an HSP is is kind of how I am. I think that's why after I spend time around things like loud, I need to take a break and step away. And so let's dig into, because somebody said like, how do we get through or get help? If you know you have to go into a situation like that, there are a couple of things we can do. Number one, we can make sure that we have our ideal environment leading up to that. Probably for like a day or two, which I know people might be like, that's excessive, Katie. To each their own, because I know if I'm going to go to like let's say a VidCon or a playlist where it's loud, and there's lots of people, and people like will touch me a lot and won't, which is fine, like hugs, photos, signing things, or pre-COVID, I guess, is what what I'm talking about. I know I'm overstimulated and I get overwhelmed and I get tired at the end of the day, like super tired. I love it, but I get tired, and so. But leading up to that, I don't do anything social, sometimes for like three, four days, because I know I need to like supercharge myself because I'm going to go into this depleting environment for me. And so if you can do something similar for yourself, figuring out what is that breath in? What's your ideal environment? For me, it's just Sean and I. I don't even want to have people over at my house, anybody. Um I don't even want to go out to dinner. I want to, if I'm going to cook dinner or order in, that's it, right? So there's certain things that I know I can do. I also will spend more quiet time at night, not even having the TV on, just like sitting in the room, reading or something just to help soothe me and prepare me. So figure out what, what soothes you so that you can prepare ahead of time. And then depending on the situation and depending on the environment, a lot of my patients in the past have worn earplugs. Now I know that sounds, you're like, well, what if someone talks to you? Often in loud places, you'd be surprised how many people will try to talk to you and then they'll touch you to get your attention. And at that point, you can pull out your earplug. And if they say, oh, how come you have that? You can say, oh, my ears have been ringing. My doctor told me to wear these. Nobody's going to question you. Or you can just say, hey, get overwhelmed in loud environments, which this is the fourth question. A lot of people agreed with you. So you're definitely not alone. If someone, when I went to South by Southwest, I wore earplugs almost, not all the time, but quite a bit. And That's just, you know, it's just overwhelming. And no one seemed surprised when I had them. Actually, somebody even asked me for another pair, which I had on hand. Thank you to, um, there was a member of our community, Ronnie, who had sent me a lot of earplugs. And I still travel with those. And those have been my favorites. They're nice and small and perfect. So anyways, those are just some thoughts. Because we have to find a way to soothe our nervous system. Another random thing that we can do when we're at a place that's really loud so we can go into the bathroom. If there's nobody that needs a handicapped stall, I encourage you to take that handicap stall so you have a little bit more space. And I'd like you to shake your body out. Getting out that that stress, that buildup, that anxiety, that, that overwhelm can help soothe us. And then I if there's hopefully there's no music in the restroom. I know a lot of times there are, there is, but um, if there's no music, you can sit in there for a minute, you know? Take your time. It's okay. I've even had patients go and splash some water in their face or like sit outside for a minute. Like, oh, you can even pretend you have to take a call. I should take a call real quick. I'll be right back. Like pick, get up from dinner, walk out for just five minutes, come right back. Just recharging ourselves along the way. But get creative. Come up with what works for you, what you feel comfortable doing. Everybody's different. But I do agree we can't always avoid loud places. But if, if you know that certain restaurants or certain places tend to be quieter, like outdoor seating has been very nice. Maybe when people say like, Oh, where do you want to go for dinner? Instead of saying, I don't care. Or where do you want to meet up? You have your places handy, like maybe keep it in the notes on your phone, so that you can easily check them. And, you know, offer up the one that you like, like, Hey, oh, you want to get coffee? Oh, oh, my favorite is this. And let's go there. And then we can ensure that we're at least a little bit more comfortable. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie, any advice for talking to my therapist? I get questions about this all the time. I've had, a, I have a hard time saying much in general and normally only give one to three word answers or just say, I don't know. That is probably the most common answer in, in therapy ever. <laughs> when I try to talk about something more uncomfortable, my mind tends to go blank and I just start to get a ringing in my ears and my skin starts to feel like it's burning or crawling. Do you know why that happens? Yeah. That's, it's called anxiety. It's that you're having a stress response. I've tried writing that type of stuff down, but I get the same feeling Yeah, it doesn't help. Okay, so there's a comment on this, but I really want to talk through this one first. I don't know if you're going to be able to, but we're going to have to see if there's another way to communicate with our therapist. Meaning, could we try video sessions? I don't love them as much, but could we try those a little bit? Does that make it easier for you? That's an option. Another thing is, does your therapist allow for emails or texts in between sessions? Can we ask for those? Can we say, I don't want you to reply. I just need to tell you things because I struggled to talk about it in therapy. Could we get that out? Could we ask for that? Because you said you have a hard time saying much in general, so you'd have to let me know what your limitations are. But those are just some of the ideas. Also, another thing that sometimes works for people, I don't know if it's going to work for you, but I'm just putting it out there, is bringing a supportive person that we feel comfortable with, with us, to therapy. Just for a little bit until we can feel like we're comfortable enough. This could be a spouse, a best friend, whoever you're close to, a parent, um, someone who's loving and supportive and knows you well and can help you feel okay. So those are just some ideas. Another thing is, do would, would having like a fidget or a, a silly putty, you know, like something you can play with, would that distract enough to help you talk? Or could we not make eye contact with our therapist? Does that make it easier? Think about, let's get creative. Let's think of things that we can do to help you be able to talk to your therapist a little bit more. Obviously, the writing it down doesn't necessarily work, but can we write it down and give it to them? Maybe we try that. And I know none of these are ideal, but we need to get you to a point where you have some way of communicating. And I would also throw out that... I would encourage you to see a psychiatrist. Maybe write down your symptoms, hand it to the nurse. You don't even say anything, write down your symptoms because I'm suspicious of, of this and how bad your anxiety is. This sounds a lot like very intense anxiety because that sweating, and the burning crawling and your ears ringing, your nervous system is, is completely overwhelmed. So we're going into like fight, flight, freeze or a stress response, which usually because of this, the way it is with the situation, it seems like a social anxiety response. Again, I only know what you told me, so I don't have the full story, but I would be suspicious of that. I think that that, that might be what's going on. And medication could help take the edge off at least for a bit, meaning you don't have to be on medication forever. You can talk to your, th- your doctor, your psychiatrist about Titrating up and titrating down. Um, also, make sure you ask about side effects and things like that, so that you're fully informed, so you know what you're taking and what to look out for. Um, but yeah, it feels it sounds like you're drowning in the symptoms, and medication could be that life raft to get your head above water, so that you can actually participate in therapy. Because it's wonderful that you have the therapist and you're going and you're trying. But it's it can be so frustrating when we feel like we're not even able to actually participate. So hopefully, some of that stuff helps. Now the comment on this is, I think this kind of relates, but sorry if it doesn't. But I also have uh, trouble talking to my therapist. For me, I know it's because I have social anxiety. And unfortunately, therapy triggers that anxiety. I am always worried what what I will say will be annoying or bothersome to my therapist. So I end up sitting in silence, or it takes me forever to talk about what I want to talk about. Do you have any tips for this? Again, medication is there for a reason, and it could be extremely helpful. In this particular question, Another option I think a lot of people maybe don't know is that you can extend your sessions. So I've had patients over the years do doubles, meaning two sessions back to back. And you kind of get like an extra 10 minutes in there because, you know, it's 50 minutes. And I always go like an hour and 50 minutes. So you end up getting kind of a little bonus. But that could be beneficial if it takes us forever to open up so that you know, maybe the first 20 minutes, just chitty chat, chitty chat, trying to get us comfortable. And then we're finally able to get into, it. or maybe it takes us an hour, whatever we could do an hour and a half. You can do a double, whatever your, you can afford or your insurance will pay or, you know, whatever your therapist has openings for. But that's, that's another potential opportunity to, or another, I guess, resource is what I would call it, or a way to make this work. And also the other things I set up above, like the writing it down, the seeing if you can email, all of that stuff. And even if you just hand your therapist a note that says, I feel like I just sit in silence because I don't, I get so anxious. I don't know what to do about this. Is there a way for me to, you know, message you, email you any of those things or not look them in the eye? Any, you know, we'll, we'll try to figure it out, get creative and let me know if any of those work or if you need more options or more ideas. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And this question says, Hi, Katie, I recently started dating and I'm having a hard time communicating my feelings and allowing myself to be vulnerable. I did a lot of inner child work in the past few weeks and discovered that I didn't really get any needs met as a child and always felt inferior to my parents because they had a lot of problems and I didn't have the space to explore my own needs and feelings. As a result, now being an adult, I'm having a hard time opening up because I always feel like I will lose the independence that I finally gained. Interesting. It's interesting that, and there's a little bit more to this question, but it's very interesting to me that we've connected opening up or maybe being vulnerable with losing your independence. Because I don't know, I don't really see the connection, but we'll get into that. So to protect myself, I've built up walls and don't allow myself to open up. How can I learn to be more vulnerable? Especially because I feel like a lot of people in my generation feel the same way. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. I think first of all, I'm glad you're doing inner child work. And I, I I hope it's, it's helping you kind of get to know child you and what what you didn't get. Because honestly, even though that can be very painful, it can also be super validating. You're like, that's why I feel like shit like this. And this. that's why I'm going through X, Y, or Z. So I hope that it's helpful. But when it comes to opening up as an adult... Well, who's to say that you can't explore your own needs and feelings now in therapy in a safe environment because, and I don't know if, if this is, it sounds like dating is where this is happening more. But therapy, the therapeutic relationship in our therapy time is a great time and a great space to practice that stuff, to get to know ourselves, to figure out, you know, how, what, what's the word for what we're going through and talking it out with our therapists till we get comfortable with that language. That's like the first place to kind of practice. And then when it comes to dating, I like to think of it, you know, like the Shrek analogy, like that we're onions, like there's layers to us. So maybe spend a little bit of time and journal out what are we okay with a new person, right? Because we don't want to go all or nothing. This is what I'm trying to discourage, you know, you from, or not even that you would necessarily do it, but discourage it from happening altogether altogether is that all or nothing in or out. Because those of us who struggle with this tend to do what I call like verbal diarrhea, where we go into a relationship and we're either completely cut off, shut down, don't share anything, ask them a bunch of questions about themselves. And we're like, la-di-da. Or we like verbal diarrhea, tell them everything about everything. And we overshare. In Sex and the City, Carrie called that being emotionally slutty and like oversharing. And So we kind of do these extremes and what I'm wanting you to do is something in the middle. And so if we can take some time to journal about these different layers. So if I've known someone, we've been on two dates, how much do I think is appropriate for them to know about me? What do I feel comfortable? Like, let's say they just don't call us back or we don't really like them that much for that third date. Am I okay with that? Does that feel neutral or maybe even safe? I don't know, but let's neutral is usually best. Okay, then what if we've been dating for a month and we're we're going to be exclusive, not see anybody else? Then what am I okay with them knowing? And what am I okay with sharing? And how much am I even comfortable knowing about them and having them share, that might be helpful for you to think about it that way. It might be easier, but take some time to kind of consider these layers so that then we can move into the being more vulnerable. So, okay. And this sounds silly, I know, but sometimes it helps for us to have kind of some deadlines. So we're like, okay, I've been talking to them and dating them or seeing them for six months. I feel like I should, now it's safe to kind of tell them that I'm in therapy. It feels like a safe time. I'm making a, it's a made up timeline. You have your own timeline. But let's say that's how we feel. So then we know, okay, in the next date or two, I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to bring it up. And then we can practice ahead of time. And I know this all sounds really contrived and really planned. But when we're struggling with something, we have to plan and prepare ahead that sets us up for success. So that might mean that we write down a couple of bullet points, like, what am I comfortable sharing about my therapy experience? Or if we're, let's say it's a different uh, milestone that we've hit, like, what am I comfortable sharing about my sister or my mom or my my work life, you know, and have a couple of bullet points that we've written down and we've thought about. Maybe we've tried to say things out loud. If it's something that's difficult, if we're being more vulnerable, we might need to practice ahead of time saying, yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't have the best childhood. And so it's hard for me to talk about my feelings. And so I've been in therapy for a year or whatever, right? Okay, how are we going to say that? What feels comfortable? What's the language you want to use? So practicing ahead of time will really, really help. And I think hopefully that vulnerability will will slowly feel more comfortable and less like, ugh, like want to crawl out of our skin but we have to do it mindfully. We can't do that all or nothing, overshare, undershare because oversharing is not us being more vulnerable, it's us having no boundaries. And so being vulnerable is more about being honest with ourselves and those we're in relationships at the time when it's appropriate, and only you know what's appropriate for you. So take some time talk to your therapist about it. You know, let's, let's come up with that layered list a little bit and it's not set in stone. It can change. And then those things are a little bit more difficult as you're working through them. What's the language we want to put to it? Do you want to have some help from our therapist on how we, how we talk about this or that or whatever? Um, yeah, I hope that helps. Keep me posted. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. And this is a great question. All of your questions are great. It says, what would you think if a client changed their appearance dramatically in a short period of time? Interesting. Weight change, piercings, dyed hair, different clothing or style. I find myself very worried what my therapist will say or if she'll say anything. And to be honest, I don't even know why I've changed so much lately. There's a reason. Would you mention it at all? 100% I would. What would you say or think? Are there reasons for doing this? Thanks for everything. I just I love this question because as someone who is a firm believer in, and this sounds very gendered and I don't mean to offend anybody, but you know that, I don't know if anybody's heard this before, but they always, like if a woman cuts her hair, like a drastic change in her haircut, it means she's like gone through something. And I am a firm believer in that. I have yet to have a friend or myself go through something extremely taxing and overwhelming and not cut their hair or change, like color it or something. Um, And so I really think, and even my old uh, hairstylist who I miss dearly, Sura, I love you, but she's in Key West now. But she used to say, change your hair, change your life. And it really does feel that way. And so obviously I specialize in eating disorder treatment. So weight change, I am on that shit like crazy. I will mention it right away. I will say something and I'm very careful with the words that I use. I will say something to the effect of, it seems that your weight has changed and I'm curious how you're doing. And should we make another appointment with your doctor or your dietitian or whatever? Or should we consider treatment? I'm straight up. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you, you know, I'm not going to use like horrible judgmental words, but I'm going to say, I'm going to let you know that I notice it. If there's any weight gain or loss that seems, you know, out of the ordinary or not in the, it's like not the route that we're going. Like if we're trying to gain weight because we're a more restrictive type. And I notice you've lost a bunch of weight or if you're trying to, you know, not binge as much and you've gained a bunch of weight, I'm going to, I'm going to make mention of it because not because I'm judging you or that I want your eating sort of voice to get louder, but because I want to ensure that the amount of help that you're getting is, is appropriate. Does that make sense? So I will mention that, but piercings, maybe not so much unless there's like a bunch of them all of a sudden or a shit ton of tattoos all of a sudden, because when people kind of act impulsively and end up with like, uh, I got seven new tattoos today or something. You're like, oh my, I mean, I, it doesn't, it's not a direct correlation. Like, oh, they had a trauma or something intense happened, but I want to at least ask about it to ensure that there isn't something going on. Does that make sense? I feel like a therapist's job is to notice and be curious so that we can decide if something needs to be discussed or worked on or not. I'm not going to jump to conclusions, but I am going to bring it to, to you to see what you have to say about it. And dyed hair, clothing style, all of that. Now I I would assume that your therapist will ask about it. Again, if they're a good therapist, which I just I'm I'm hoping that they are, and let's just assume that they are. They're going to, they're not going to judge. They're just going to be curious because again, like I said, big changes don't necessarily mean a whole bunch of stuff. Like for instance, I got my nose pierced when I was going to college. If you guys didn't know, I used to have my nose pierced right here. i thought about putting it back in because I did love it a lot. But when I had to get a job and you know, when I was out of school back, you have to remember the times this was like 2006 2006. I couldn't have any visible piercings other than earlobe. So I had to take out like my tragus and up on, I have a, like cartilage piercings. I had to take all that out and I just never put it back in, frankly. Um, but anyways, that's like, I don't, you guys probably care less about that. But um, that was because it was I was going to college. It was like, it was a big transition for me. And I, I wanted to do it. And I think sometimes we can do things for, for no real reason because we, on an impulse, we're like, your friend was getting a tattoo and you're like, yeah, I'll get one. Or you went to get your hair cut and you just saw someone who had like a dark brown hair and you're like my color and you're like, you know what? I've always wanted brown hair. I'm just going to do it. We can do things like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But a therapist is going to check in and they're going to ask just to make sure everything's okay because... I'll be honest, a lot of my patients, not not eating disorder related, not weight change related, but a lot of my patients have shown physically things that are going on emotionally. I think we all would agree that we do that. And if we're in a huge transition, or maybe we don't feel like we know who we are, or I don't know, maybe something traumatizing happened, we can express it differently when we don't really have words to put to it. And so any therapist worth their salt is going to ask about it. And the way that they'll probably ask if you're worried, because it sounds like you're very worried about what they're going to say, most likely it'll be something like, let's just pretend your name is Lily. So I would say, Lily, I really like the new haircut. I'm curious. Have you been wanting to do this for a long time? Or when did this come about? Because I'm noticing some changes in you and I just want to touch base and make sure everything's okay. That would be how I'd bring it up. Or like, you know, if my patient all of a sudden was like, they used to wear, I don't know, pink and white dresses or something, then they came in totally goth. I would say, it seems like your style has shifted. What happened? What what caused this style change? Do you have a new friend or someone, you know, on TV or in social media that you like that dresses like that? You know, I would ask questions, again, in a non-judgmental fashion, just more as I noticed this, let's talk about it more. And that's really it. And so the reasons are to make sure that you're doing okay, and that we're not letting anything slide by without paying attention. Because I'll tell you, I i mean, I don't even have a number, but a lot of my patients wanted me to ask, even though I don't think they would consciously have said they wanted me to ask, but something's going on. And again, I think I talked about this earlier. I don't know which question it was about like the body language. I think that was question number one or two It's like the body language of a patient is important because sometimes it tells us what what they aren't able to put words to. And so as a therapist, I want to pay attention to that. And I want to mention it so I can ensure that they know I care and that I'm paying attention because they're important. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. It says, Hey, Katie, is it normal to have conversations in your head with your therapist? You know that they're not there, but can't help but have conversations about different things going on in your head? Or is this just weird? Thank you for everything you do. Of course, a ton of these questions were like, me too, me too, or not questions, the comments below this question We're like, oh my God, I do this too. And to be truthful, I've had this question before, so I know it's happening. But until I received questions in the past and this one today, I didn't realize how common this is. So, you know, you're not crazy. It's not weird. I just... It's not like my patients are going to tell me they're doing it. Maybe they would. It wouldn't be a problem. But I think sometimes when we have a a person in our life, like a therapist or a teacher that we look up to or anybody, even somebody at work, like a mentor, I think when we have someone like that that we feel we can go to with with issues and we can talk out things with and we feel comfortable with, when throughout the week, especially with therapy, right, because we see them once, maybe twice a week, those in-between days, things happen And because we have that connected, good therapeutic relationship, we can kind of play through what we think they would say, which in a way is extremely wonderful. And what a great resource that you have created, because even though you're giving yourself the advice, you're doing it through the lens of your therapist, which is a fucking powerful tool. And I love that you're doing it. And I think if it's helpful, keep doing it. There's nothing weird. I think it's just your way of kind of talking things out or getting like sage advice or wise counsel from someone, right? It's like, even though they're not there and you know, they're not there. It's not like we're talking schizophrenia and like you don't believe you're talking to someone. But you use that relationship that you've cultivated and that trust and also what you know about how they respond. Like many of you have told me, like, I know what you're going to say. It's that same thing. You can imagine you're talking to me and you, you already kind of know what I'm going to say. And you're doing that with your therapist, which is just beautiful. And so you're using all of your resources. I think it's wonderful. Okay. And the comment below this says, I do this too every day, especially because I feel like she's a great therapist and she fits. Yay. So, I literally have a convo in my head. But the thing is, at some point, I can't control my ruminating thoughts and anxiety. So, at a point, I stop having the convo with her and I get really deep in my head. Is this something to talk to her about? Yes, please. Does this seem like OCD? It definitely could be linked to OCD. But OCD, just for clarity, means that we have, we obsess about certain things and we feel compelled, the compulsion to do a thing, right? So we obsess. Like let's say I I do checking is one of the behaviors that's very common with OCD meaning I have to check that the stove is turned off uh 12 times before I can leave the house. There's always these random number depending. Like one of my patients was all about the number 6 and, and then everything had to be even numbers and if she had did something even number she had to do it again so that it wasn't or if she did an odd number then she had to do it one more time to make it even. Do you know what I mean? There's like a weird comfortability with certain numbers depending... And everybody's different, but I'm just giving you an example. So I would obsess about checking the stove 12 times and I would check it. and I'd be like, okay, one. But that compulsion, me doing it is the C. The the C, the compulsion is me checking it. And if I don't do that thing, if I don't go to the stove and check... I believe that something bad will happen and the anxiety will build for me until I do the compulsion. Now, spoilers OCD is best treated when we don't do the thing, we don't do the compulsion. So we prove to ourselves that nothing bad is going to happen and then it slowly dissipates. It's like exposure therapy, but I don't want to get too much into that. I just want to let everybody know what OCD is because. This could maybe be that pure O O C D where we have like thoughts and thought compulsions that we do. Like I had this as a kid. I was actually just talking to my friend Cheryl Burke about this because we I was with her the other day. I was at her house um, in L.A. That's when I was in L.A. I was visiting her and we're shooting some cool projects. So stay tuned. But anyway, we we were talking about this and I don't think I've ever shared this with you guys. But as a kid, I had this strange, like probably a year of my life. And I don't, I'd have to dig back and figure out what was going on. I don't know if I like was transitioning to a different school. I think it was middle school and I would, or like, you know, like maybe I was hitting puberty. I don't even know you guys, but I think I was a little young. Well, no, 10 to 12. So yeah, probably in that range. Anyway. I'm getting off on a tangent. I apologize. But I used to have to spell everything out before I would say it. So I'd spell it out in my head. So that was like kind of that pure OOCD. Now the anxiety would build. I don't think I knew what the bad thing would happen if I didn't do it, but I felt compelled to do it. And then I forced myself to not because it got to be so debilitating. It was hard for me to participate in school and at home and with my friends. And then I played a lot of sports and it just, it was like really fucking me up. And I felt it. And I don't, I wasn't in therapy yet. I think my mom had started and maybe at that point, I told her about it and she's like, sis, that's not good. And I was like, I know I hate it. And so I'm anyway, I forced myself to stop it slowly through my own exposure therapy. It wasn't comfortable or easy. Probably should have had a therapist, but you know, hindsight's always uh, 2020. But anyway, I say that because if that's what's happening in your head, if you feel like a compulsion in your thoughts, then yes, it could be part of that like pure O -O OCD kind of, and I have videos about pure O -O -O OCD and OCD as a whole, so you can check those out. But otherwise it sounds like it might just be anxiety, but either way, please talk to your therapist. They'll have questions kind of like I'm talking you through some options. They're going to have some questions about that and that can hopefully help you better understand what's going on and figure out what the best way to overcome it is. Let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. I'm no, I know I'm late, so you probably won't see this. I did. Ha-ha, tricked you. Okay, not really tricked you, but surprise. My question is, why can someone not cry? Personally, for me, my therapist has told me that I need to cry to help with the pressure that I'm feeling. Well, I'll challenge that a little. I'll get, we'll get back to that. It is so hard. I watch sad videos, listen to sad songs, think of all the abuse that I was put through, yet I still can't cry. Even when I'm on the edge of crying, I automatically shut all my emotions down. I want to run down and I want to run away. Does anyone else feel like this? Because I feel so alone. Oh my God, you're not alone. So many of us feel this way. It's super, super common. And the reason that this probably didn't get a gazillion thumbs up is because again, it was late. Not crying is super common. Because the reason being, we're not in touch with our emotions because being in touch with them feels very out of control overwhelming. I've heard from tons of you and even my patients over the years I think one of my patients described it like she had all her feelings in this like in this big pool of water and she had fastened the thing to let the water out so tight because if she let it out it would drown her. she felt like she would drown in it. And it's such a great visualization because life is gonna pour into that pool constantly. We're going to have feelings each and every day. We're going to feel sad, mad, excited. And all of those feelings can feel like a lot. But I'm here to tell you that you don't have to take off that complete faucet on the end. You can poke a little hole and let it drip out. And that's what I really want you to try to work on. And the way that we would do that is instead of trying to force yourself to cry, I want you to try the body shake. And I know everybody out there is like, Jesus Christ, Katie, stop talking about the body shake. I'm so sick of it. But I'm here to tell you that... Moving emotions through, moving uh, our stress response or anxiety through our system can be done in a lot of ways. And it's not just through crying or through actual verbal communication. We can do many other things. Somatic experiencing is a the helpful therapy for a reason. So try shaking out and see what comes up for you. Maybe try yoga or doing a different type of workout or even just stretching. That might help too. So give those things a try and report back. But also, I want you to start getting to know your emotions a little bit because I think the shutting down and wanting to run away is you feeling like they're completely out of control. And so I want you to get go to feelingswheel.com. I think that's what it is, just feelingswheel.com. I love feelingswheel. And the way that you can use a feelings wheel, and I might be saying this wrong or getting the amounts wrong, but you start in the middle of it and you pick one or maybe two. Again, I'd have to read my notes from like forever ago when I used to use this all the time. But you can start in the middle and pick one or two feelings and then go out to the next wheel and pick twice as many. So if you're picking two, you do four. If you're picking one, you pick two and so on and so forth as you work your way out. I want to say there's like four layers. Let me pull it up. How to use... Okay, just to make sure that I'm doing it right. Okay. It says the, the emotion wheel describes eight basic emotions, anger, anticipation, disgust. Oh, this is a little bit different. Okay. Well, um, let's not get into this. I apologize. But anyways, take it, go to the feelings wheel and pick from anywhere. It doesn't even matter. Pick one or two. And then I want you to write those feelings down. And then I want you to write a little bit about what those Feel like to you. So, if we were going to talk about sadness, which might be too charged for you, too like emotionally charged, we might want to talk about something like irritation. Anger and irritation and frustration sometimes are easier to tap into, but I'm just hypothesizing you might find joy or maybe even just feeling unmotivated or I don't even know. I'm trying to think of different feelings words like a apathetic. Maybe those are easier for you, but pick, pick some that are, that don't feel so overwhelming, that don't give you that, I want to shut down, runaway experience. I want you to feel like you can stay present with it. And then I want you to tell me how it feels in your body and what you think about those feelings. Are there judgments or assumptions? Like what is it that we're, we think about it? It doesn't have to be a ton. These can just be like one bullet point of like, I'll, I'll do an example. So let's say that I'm just, I'm describing anger because I know anger very well and she scares me, but I need her. And she's also, you know, helpful, a helpful emotion to tell me that something's hurt my feelings. So anger feels like a fire in my chest and a lump in my throat. Okay. So that's one done. Then the next would be that, um, that my thoughts about anger are she's out of control, but she's helpful. I guess I kind of already did it but she's super helpful. And she tells me when I'm actually hurt. So that's it for that. Okay. And I know that kind of seemed like a lot, but I'm just telling you to pick a couple, pick anywhere from one to three. Let's start with that and try to do that for a week. And the goal is not to do it every day for a week, but I'd be happy with four to five days a week that'd be awesome. Try to do that. And then we'll try to increase it a little bit because what my goal is for the for you when it comes to this is for you to get to know your emotions and understand how you're experiencing them so that you can not feel like you have to just let that faucet completely open and drown in them, but that you can poke some holes and you can let them dribble through and we won't be like stockpiling anymore because as they come in now, we're able to process them. Does that make sense? And so as we get to know them, we can then more easily tap into them and allow them to be heard because we we know what they're offering for us. We understand how they feel. We can identify them instead of this like cut off, shut down thing. And then and only then will the crying come because crying is such a vulnerable thing and i i feel completely out of control with my crying because i tend to cry when i'm angry which then is frustrating cuz i'm like god no they don't take me seriously and i'm not sad i'm mm-hmm. fucking mad it just it's this horrible spiral and so i don't always i don't feel like the crying is something that has to happen right now i think the body shake might take some of that pressure off and getting to know your feelings might take some of that pressure off And then we can allow ourselves to cry when we need to, because we've tapped in and we're able to recognize grief or overwhelm or anger. And we maybe decide that crying is what we need to do to express that. But that's down the line. Right now, we just need to get to know what we're going through and put a name to it and a bodily experience behind it. Does that make sense? I hope so. I know it's a lot, lot, but I hope it's helpful. Okay, final question. Question number 10 says, How do you get the benefits of therapy, meaning how can I get the most from it so that it helps? Well, they said so it helps you, but I'm going to say so it helps me. Great question. And the truth, and I added this question. It was one of those I scrolled and poked, and I was like, this is actually really good, and I think it's something important that we should talk about. And the truth about therapy is that if we... And again, we're all going to have different abilities. So I don't want this, this isn't a place for judgment. This is just a place for curiosity and understanding, right? When it comes to therapy, the best way to get the most out of it is to show up and be as honest as possible. And then, so that's, I know that's already hard, but that's like in session, that's what we should do. We need to show up and be as honest as possible. And then when we're outside of therapy, we don't just turn it off. We need to still be doing the work. Meaning, If I'm just starting therapy, in the downtime, I should be thinking about what I want to bring up there and what I'm having difficulty with. So I'm just being more mindful of my experience. Like personally, um, since we moved, I need to find a new therapist, you guys. Like I, I, I don't have anybody here, so I have to seek that out. Recently, I've been trying to take stock of the things I'm struggling with, right? And so I'm struggling with overworking myself and then not being too hard on myself and my self-talk just because I know better doesn't mean I do better. And so I'm trying to take some stock of what's going on and what my symptoms are. And I would encourage you to do that because then when I go in to see someone, if I find someone that I click with, right, I can tell her those things. I can let her know, hey, I've been trying to pay attention in the last two months. I've been feeling really stressed and we moved, so... Obvious, but then you know my self talk has kind of gotten bad. But then it got a little better. But then it got bad, and you know I'm working too much, and I I'm struggling with my boundaries around work. I'll have things to talk about, and then I can keep it. Then when I'm working with a therapist, then I know that they know my goals, right? Because if these are my main problems, the goal would be to not have those problems. Pretty easy, or not even easy. That's not the word. Simple when it comes to treatment planning, and. It, and that will ensure that they know where I'm truly at and what's bothering me the most. And so that's kind of the work you do outside of therapy, along with if your therapist does give you homework, making time to give it your best. It does not mean that every time a therapist gives us homework, we're gonna be like, oh easy peasy. We actually shouldn't feel that way. It should be kind of challenging. We should want to put it off and then we should tell them, yeah, I really wanted to put it off. And I did for like three days. And then I was like, shit, this is the only time I have. That's all helpful. Therapy's hard. We're supposed to be challenged. It's not supposed to be like going in and talking with a friend. Otherwise, why would we need therapists? And we all know our friends can help us sometimes, but a lot of times it's the blind leading the blind and we need an outside perspective. And so those are just some of my thoughts about therapy. Obviously, and I, I feel like I should have said this first, finding a therapist you click with is key. Without that, none of the stuff I talked about is important at all. So in order to get any bit benefit from therapy, we have to feel like our therapist is with us, that that we like them enough to share some of the stuff that we're going to share because it can be hard, right? And it's hard. I don't know. It's It's so difficult to to open up. And we want to make sure that we're giving ourselves, we're making it at least a little bit easier. And that connection and that click that we can feel with our therapist is really beneficial and the most important thing. And the the honestly, it's like the the gate that has to be open in order for us to benefit at all. And I talk a lot, I have videos about how to know if you're seeing a good or bad therapist. I talk about it in my book that came out in 2018, Are You Okay? I have a whole, I don't know, maybe three chapters just about what different therapists are out there, how to know if you're seeing a good one or a bad one, what's the click in the therapeutic relationship, what's that feel like. I have a whole bunch of stuff, so if you're interested in that, you can pick that book up as well. That's it, you guys. That's all we got for this week. Thank you so much for your questions. And I missed you guys last week, so it was kind of nice to just come back on here and to see your questions and everything. So thank you for being part of the community. Thank you for sharing the podcast. Thank you for all your love. I will see you next time. Bye you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.